or like highly realized people or whatever is because like they uh well it's kind of like you know you know that guy that pitched a no hitter on LSD yeah yeah I heard about that yeah. yeah well it's like if you're if you're like good at something and you're not nervous or whatever, LSD can bump it up big time, especially if it's some kind of creative activity. Yeah. Let's see, with, with like meditation and stuff, they say, or the masters, what they said was like, it takes you to like one of the high states of consciousness, you know? Mm-hmm. But you don't like stay there. You fall back down really quickly. You know? That was the story with Terrence McKenna giving DMT to a monk, and he said that's as far into the bardo as a person can get while still alive. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. not sure if that was ever verified, but that that's I've heard that I feel like multiple times. Yeah, and but see, he gave 900 mics to or 900 micrograms supposedly, which is like three tablets, which is 900 micrograms is a lot. Yeah. To the guy, and he said nothing happened. He just acted normally, and that and and I could see it in a sense because I've taken quite a bit of LSD, and and if you meditate and stuff, I mean, yeah. you can sit there and meditate on LSD, and it's pretty amazing. So it's like definitely like the higher your consciousness is, like the better LSD would be, but it wouldn't affect you in a sense. You would just feel amazing. Mm-hmm. Like it's not like you you would go crazy or anything. You would just feel like completely blissful or whatever. So uh, at least a a good amount of the effects uh, from psychedelics come from the reduction of activity in the default mode network. Like they put out a lot of articles talking about this, and this is a connection to meditation. I feel like. Perhaps they had already done that. Like, if that's where a lot of the effects are coming from, and then you take something that art that suppresses it as well. Exactly. Then what? The not you, You're doubling. You, you, it's like amplifying. It's it. already suppressed. Like, yeah, exactly. Can't go much farther. That's the thing, though. It's like it's amplifying it, but it's also there's all, all kinds of effects that we don't currently understand. I would say, especially with like higher states of consciousness or altered states of consciousness, because hmm. like everybody talks about the normal state of consciousness that is affected by LSD, you yeah. know? And no one, no one really talks about, like, super heightened states of consciousness in there and the way LSD affects those states of consciousness. No, and then the, how, how, you, how they could be used, you know? Maybe how, like, maybe heightened states of consciousness on LSD are the ones that are able to see, like, math equations that normal people wouldn't be able to see or something like that eventually if someone was able to train their mind in a certain way or something like that you know no you make it i mean that's a very good point that you have to distinguish like these people aren't exactly in a normal waking state when they're starting off uh taking these things and you probably i've probably sent it to you before but the wilbur uh combs lattice we have developmental stages on the left hand and states on the right hand and yeah you can you're always somewhere on this lattice, but you can go up, you can go left and right. This is what people typically do. But stages are linear states, come in cycles, sleeping, waking, drug-induced yeah, states, whatever. Yeah. But each person, depending on what developmental stage you're at, experiences the states differently. Yes. So this, this would connect very well yes. with that. I mean, that, I, I do think that's true. You know, I was reading one thing today about um, colors in the brain. Hmm. When you see certain colors, you have different brain activity, right? Which may, which obviously, right? But it's interesting because it's like uh, warmer colors, like yellow and reds, cause more brain activity. Cooler colors, blues, like darker colors, cause less brain activity. When you look at Shiva, 
and you look at a lot of the tantras, mm. dark blue, you imagine the deity is dark blue, and mm. Shiva's blue, and Samatabahaja's dark blue. So it's interesting that they naturally came to colors that are calming on the mind. Like, through intuition and experience, they recognize that these colors make the mind less active and and seemingly and kept them in meditation traditions, mm-hmm. you know. But then, there's, there's of course, there are yellow deities and red deities and stuff, too, but those have certain different functions, usually. Usually, a red deity is usually fierce and has a lot of fire and all kinds yeah. of stuff going on, so it even matches the the scientific study in that way too you know because you're because that's the kind of things that that's why i say certain deities and certain colors are kind of important if you want to interact with certain states of mind because in Mm -hmm. a sense you're you're just you're making like default states in your brain or certain resting brainwave patterns are changing when you're imagining that color and then imagining the deity and whatever it symbolizes or all these kinds of things you're 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 causing little networks in your brain to start firing mm-hmm. that weren't firing previously, sure. you know. And it, and see, I think to modify consciousness to high degrees, you mm-hmm. have to turn on these certain little networks. It's almost like neurolinguistic programming. Sure. You're using all these everything, colors, sight, sound, taste, everything to get your brain moving in a certain way mm-hmm. so then you can get to a certain altered state of consciousness so then you can do something so you can so then you can practice for wisdom practice for compassion do whatever mm-hmm. but you're but you're kind of like using all these subtle little tricks to modify consciousness in small ways you well, know so this reminds me of uh in the western esoteric tradition the grimoires you're often told not to, to change anything yeah but i think and probably in Tantra, I mean, there's probably some suggestion as well. But you have this long list of things that you're supposed to do in this order that are sort of developed by people that have taken a very long time to develop these things. But you don't have a good idea of why you should be using red over green. And, like, you probably don't have a clear idea of why you're doing a lot of things you're doing, right? Exactly. No. And especially when you're first initiated or something Mm -hmm. like you would like there's a stage where they talk about it like when you can explain the tantras to other people Mm -hmm. and things like that like you get to those stages so but yeah first on you wouldn't and see in a sense i think it's kind of primitive methods like it came from Mm -hmm. using the colors and stuff by themselves without deities and all this stuff but but with vajrayan and stuff you're talking about the most advanced, highly specialized system mm-hmm. to modify the mind. So you're using deities, you're using all the colors, you're using your hands, you're using your, you're saying mantras in your mind while you're saying them with your mouth, while mm-hmm. you're doing mudras with your hand and everything. So you're getting the whole body involved, but also the whole mind. All aspects yeah. of the brain are involved in practice too. Why? I guess that the point I was made, I was making there, was that all these practices especially when they're really complicated like that i think a good way to think about it is they're like a key and like you have to have every crease and divot properly in place or the key is not going to work if you want to achieve a very particular state of consciousness i mean you might you're probably still going to do very well if you meditate for 12 hours on a yellow dd as opposed to a red one but it might be slightly different and it, not, exactly. it might not be exactly what you're trying to do well it'll give you subtle differences in experience and it'll give you subtle differences in subjective experience and that that's kind of like the whole thing about it though is is really you know recognizing things that modify your subjective experience like things that modify your state of mind your state of being but also 
a lot of these people have meditated so long mm. that they're already geared to recognize when their mind changes a little bit, you know? Yeah. So it's like with the colors and stuff, you're talking about highly realized beings. Realized like when they looked at yellow, that it started making their brain a little fuzzy or well, something, you know? Very high degrees of metacognition is something that's talked about really often that's developed through meditation is that you get very good at looking at the mind and, and noticing very slight changes, yeah? Yeah. So it would take somebody like that to distinguish probably the difference between blue and red if something and see, that basic. And see, and they're not... I'm, and it's not like science or something. It's more like shamanism or something. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing. It's an object for your mind to use to modify itself, you know? It's not... It's, it's, it's a spiritual practice in a sense, but it, it's like connected to, you know... Just activating different parts of the mind and and consistently doing it. Mm. So you're focusing on say yellow or blue deity every day for two hours or something. So you're really over time modifying your mind in a great degree, really. Yeah, I mean that's a the, the idea of whether it's a science or uh, an art or something like that. It's or more like an art. That's Crowley's true. whole thing, like the methods of science, the uh, the ends of religion. I mean, religion, I, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, a very good way to put it. Yeah. But I've been watching people and they've been having arguments uh, about theism and so forth. But they talk about science being oh, a major feature is making novel predictions, right? You say, well, I know this is going to happen. You don't really know. You don't have to say exactly why to be scientific, but that's part of it. This is yeah. basically what they're doing. Because it is a novel prediction, because it hasn't happened to that person yet. Yeah. So they might say, do this, and this is going to happen. I think that's a very uh, a scientific stance to take. Well, it's kind of like the chakras, too, right? You, you imagine the energy body. The mm-hmm. energy body is imagined first. And then after the imagination practices, for months or years you've practiced, then it actually happens. Mm-hmm. It's not a thing of the imagination anymore. It's a thing that spontaneously happens in the body. And it's real. It's not necessarily related to what you've been visualizing. Mm-hmm. But in a certain roundabout way, it is, you know, because you've, you've made it, c- mm-hmm. made that connection for yourself. So it's kind of interesting because really it is about like, like creating symbols, but then keeping the symbols have it, ha- having the same meaning. Keeping the symbols with the same meaning for thousands of years, and then and and many minds interacting with those symbols, and then figuring out how those symbols modify the mind and the energy body, or like the aspects of the body that give you imagination, intuition, inspiration, like all these things that allow you to not eat for days but stay up and talk all the time and yeah. things like that. You know, it's like because because really they're trying to. Well, Hinduism, Buddhism specifically, a lot of the practices. Well, the city tradition, like the tradition of, of, of great meditation masters and tantric masters and stuff, they're trying to modify the body to such a great degree to really, you know, use the mind to its greatest capacity in a sense. Or the, well, the body, the mind and body. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to take up what you said about the imagination. Yeah. Because I feel like I possibly have written at least a little bit about this. Because I've talked to people about the imagination and being the inter- intermediary between a lot of things, a lot of states, but in particular out-of-body states. Yes. Because the imagination is a, is the prime primary method. Yes. Where you're, whether you're visualizing yourself or using the tactile imagination or whatever, or somatic imagination, like yeah. that's the intermediary. And what you're doing is you're imagining the actual event. So the methods that work really well are the methods in which you 
are visualizing or feeling yourself or tactually imagining yourself outside of your body doing things. Yeah. It's like, but that's imaginary, and that's yes. not a full like out of body state. It's not. It's really. It's it's kind of close, but still, it's still ten miles away. But but but, it's, it's, but, it's, yeah. but if you do that long enough, it precipitates a process that initiates a genuine out of body state where you really are outside of your body. Exactly. And having a, the full experience as opposed to just imagining things. Well, you see how in Buddhism they call this a generation stage and a completion stage. Mm-hmm. Like you're spending time generating this state, and then you spend so much time generating that, eventually you have this state spontaneously really happen. Yeah. You know? And well, that's so, fast. I mean, the connection there is really fascinating. And what they're doing, they're just doing it over a long... They're doing something a little, a little bit different, but there's a definite similarity. Well, they also have sleep and dream yoga, so they're also sometimes that's doing well, that, the exact same thing, true. you know? Um, but, yeah. So, you know, I've read books on, like, Tibetan yoga. I'm sure there's a lot more about it I just haven't come across but a lot of their methods are based on uh, using the chakras like they use Zion meditation you get into a meditative state you lay down you're laying on on your right side of a belief at least at the start of a night but you're visualizing uh, different chakras I think you start with the throat chakra and you go to different ones throughout the night like I you keep changing it like you yes. start I don't remember the exact order, but I think you start with the throat, you go to the brow, you go down to the secret chakra well, and the navel. Yeah. Well, they have different. They have also methods like, like you focus on the crown chakra to sleep more lightly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And you focus on the throat to sleep harder, because they're because like you want to, you know, stay in the dream but not wake up. Because they say once you get proficient at dream practice, the problem is you're so aware in your dream that you start waking yourself up all the time. Mm. And and they and they, so they, you're kind of trying to ride that middle middle stage where you're highly aware but you're still asleep, mm-hmm. you know, which is which is fairly tricky. But see that I think that practice well, it's because I is something I did as a child so much was like trying to catch the moment of sleep. Mm-hmm. That I I really do think that that clear light of sleep practice is kind of a brilliant thing if you if you can really. Like consistently get to where you could do that. Like mm-hmm. catch catch your awareness basically as it's in falling asleep, and then catch your awareness as it's in the dream and going into the dream. That it seems like that. I mean, that does seem like some of the uh, ex- the best practice aside from like illusionary body practice, light body practice, yeah. various things like that. You know, Chakra I would practice. I wouldn't go so far to say that these things are dangerous. I think people kind of make it seem too extreme. But when I was having out-of-body states, and I was also, like, smoking weed a lot, and just kind of not very well grounded, I felt really weird after having a lot of these experiences, and I felt weird, like, all day, well, they, like, a hangover. Yeah, well, and they do say, I, I mean, I talked to another person that lives here, he did a lot of lucid dreaming stuff, mm-hmm. and he had the same thing while at, where he, would, you know, got, like, wanted to be in the dream more than in real life, mm-hmm. and they say that, that happens to people as well, you know, because that's one of the pitfalls of anything like that because yeah. you can experience stages of bliss and everything more more so than you could normally and you can get anything you want and all that kind of stuff so there's always the same pitfalls but even amplified because the desires here are amplified in the dream especially if you can control it fully yeah so you really have to do a lot of desire practice in well, a sense well they call the astral body the desire body yeah and i wonder because you do you act out your desires in dreams but you also yeah like you said you also do that in the dream state and out of body state, and I think you are more inclined, because I think your ra- your rational brain isn't necessarily a hundred percent there. Like when you're lucid dreaming, 
like that part of your brain is a lot more active. But it, the, I think the natural tendency for your physiology is to dampen it. Like you're not really meant necessarily to be aware during your dreams, and it's really yeah. hard. And even it happens very often. Like you become lucid, and you tell yourself that you're lucid, and you just fall into another dream. Yeah. So it's like it's you're always pushing a rock uphill. Yeah. Until you. But there are plateaus where you get lucid enough, you don't really have to worry about it. But until you reach that, it is an uphill battle trying sure. to stay aware. Well, it's just it's everything like that. It's constant practice. It's like no, muscle true. memory. You have that's to do it. That's true for meditation as well. Yeah, it's all the time. Because it's, it's just like training yourself any kind of technique. Like, you're not going to learn it if you don't do it all the time. Well, and, and then you forget it. Because the memory's not that great. So you start forgetting things instantly once you stop doing it. So. Well, it's like... Um, attractor basins like it takes a lot of energy to leave a gravity well and then you have points where well you, you're kind of in between states and you could go either way but once you're in a lucid dream state like fully it's pretty easy to stay there once you're in a meditative state fully it's pretty easy to stay there it's just getting there is the difficult part well for some time at least i mean it it, like, it does lose energy whatever yeah but the tendency is once you're actually there things tend to stabilize for at least a while, right? Well, at least if you get if you get proficient at it. I mean, if you do it repeatedly, you, I mean, you can definitely get very proficient at a lot of these practices. Well, I, I but two, it takes thought, thinking about it all day and stuff like yeah. that too, which is something that, that a lot of people don't have time to do. But it's like it takes a lot of thought and imagination and mm -hmm. everything to make a lot of this stuff work. Like it, you can't just. It's not like like disappear out of nothing magic it's yeah. like it's magic that takes a lot of effort to make happen well all brain all, all magic is brain magic i think yeah at least in part well, well especially especially when you have minds interacting with other minds right like that is definitely like magic's territory in a sense but i guess calling it brain magic is just that <clears throat> uh you're fighting against the inertia of already pre-established neural of connections yeah. right exactly yeah and william james in his essay and the principle of psychology says it very well but you have all these things these well-worn pathways that the brain and the body just want to take because it's like it becomes very easy to do so least energy yeah it's very it's very difficult to fight those and, and, and the body and the yeah. brain whatever because it's about com it's about comfort a lot of times too it's because it, people are just trying to do like what they've already done mm. You know, and, people and are always trying to do that. They, I don't think most people frame themselves. And I think it's even True. beyond True. being like, hey, I want to be comfortable. It's like unconsciously, hey, this is really adaptive. Just like you've survived doing this so far. So we're just going to lock this in. I think that's what, like a lot of people stay in their bad habits their entire lives. It's detrimental in a lot of ways. But it, it was established being at an early stage and it worked for survivability. So they just kept doing it in the body says okay it works so we're gonna or they continue. or they had to do it they had mm -hmm. to keep doing it you know they were forced to keep doing it by the pressures of some bad situation or something you know or some not ideal situation so it ends up giving a person really bad habits of well, thought they, or habits of action well i watched this show about body language and this guy he always says like the organism does what makes the organ organism successful and people will just keep doing it i, I know like even in video games if i kill somebody in a corner I go directly and I die. I go directly back to that corner. You know, it's like sure. It's so it's so basic. But this like, is that. But see, a lot of this kind of stuff. But you can use a lot of this stuff in practice. Like if you figure out these little little kind of metaphysics of the mind, you can use them in practice. You know, but but like a lot of practice is about 
finding these habits and then not following them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like being able to steal your mind and not chase after the habitual pattern mm-hmm. or not chase after not go into that comfort zone that you usually go into right. where where you where where you know everything and everything's all wrapped up and mm-hmm. everything's and everything's put in certain boxes and you never have to look at it again and all that kind of stuff i mean that that's just uh, but that happens every day. I mean, right. we always get comfortable with things every day, and it's always a challenge to kind of keep the mind in it, uh, ever progressing, well, in a sense. Well, that's why I really respected Descartes and his meditations. The, the idea, he was like, he was older when he wrote it, but he was like, I always wanted him to question everything from the ground up, and I'm finally doing it. I'm like, well, that's that's really impressive that anybody would ever do that well that's i mean that's philosophy it would, well i think that's it, pure philosophy yeah it takes a philosopher it also takes a genius it also takes somebody well see that's the thing i think physics in the old days physics led to metaphysics because anyone with a sufficiently powerful mind surveys everything in the world and they do that for like 60 years 50 years 40 years whatever then eventually they start surveying their emotions and their yeah. thoughts and their ideas and they start and their imagination. They turn in on themselves and they start looking at everything in themselves like they looked at the objects of the world. Mm-hmm. And then they start turning all these little motions into into uh, what we what we have now. You know, imagination and everything. But uh, I, you've heard it multiple times. But I want to talk about the, the first out of body experience because it really stands out i mean it was generally one of the most interesting and fright i mean it was frightening experiences of my life and it was unexpected as well because leading up to that point i had had a few minor successes and you were around of course at the time yeah. i was carrying around astral dynamics like reading it constantly yeah and even before that i had read stephen lomberg's uh exploring the world lucid dreaming and i had done i would do probably a hundred state test a day like yeah. i'm really into it i mean i state tested and stuff at that mm-hmm. time i mean i had a few lucid dreams too at certain periods of it but you know but um yeah i had a few minor incidents where i was on the couch and i felt like uh my legs were lifting above my body and you have to keep in mind i mean it, it, of course it's subjective but it feels real and james was talking about this is what like something very similar he was like a Subjective events don't happen in a different realm. Everything happens out there in the world, and th- these yeah. experiences happened out there in the world too. Yeah. And they happen to my real, to my perceived body that is e- when it's present, it's equally as real as your physical body, right? Exactly. And well, that, well, that's the thing. It doesn't have to be physical to be real. Yeah. You know. Just that right it has to be vivid and immediate. And Descartes talks about this as well. But that that's what it was. So my subjective or my my dream body my light body my experience of it took precedence over my physical body and that's so that's what i was feeling it was almost as if i didn't have a physical body at the time but i did have another body equally as vivid and i felt these you know these these legs my legs uh lifting up above my body and i heard the door slam and i came back but i guess a week or two later i was laying in my bed i was doing um robert bruce's rope technique i was uh imagining myself you know primarily tactile, like lifting myself above my body with a rope over and over again. And I didn't even experience myself slip into a trance or slip into an altered state of consciousness or anything of the sort. I felt completely normal and everything was very routine and I didn't have huge expectations exactly. But in an instant, I find myself flying to my right, uh, 
through the room. And it happened practically instantly. And all of a sudden I have my sight before my eyes were closed, but now I can see the room passing by. Um, I believe I'm looking at my window. I see the wall go by and I'm going through the attic and I see the inside of the attic and I land in my backyard. It's a very sunny day, which was true of the, it was still light when I was doing this as well. And uh, I had the presence of mind could be, to look around because I still felt completely normal. I mean, the situation was very odd, and I was excited and so forth and kind of perplexed, but I still felt like me. I, again, I didn't feel like I was in a trance at all. I felt like I normally did. And I looked around, and I had presence of mind to say, well, I know what's happening because I had read about it. So I look around, and I noticed that things were a little bit different. Uh, the fence was a little bit different. I think the tree might have been a little uh, different than it was normally. But I did notice that the trees were waving, uh, and I did see a, a show of shadows on the ground. Um, and I actually thought to myself that perhaps I had died. And I think it was more than just a feeling. I think I actually thought, like, oh, what have I done? Something of the sort. And what shows you, I immediately tried to go back to my body, which didn't wouldn't have made sense unless I was pretty afraid because I had been working up to this and thinking about it for months and then it happens and I try to get out of it so that's how afraid I was but, but that's how real it was at, at the same time yeah I mean I think see this is the thing truly I believe sleep and dream practice is a necessity and chakra practice like if you really want to get to serious altered states of consciousness that are stable that mm. millions of minds have found all over the world certain things like that like uh certain of these like these things are kind of a necessity to do and not just a little bit but a lot like you have to practice certain of these practices a lot to get to yeah. to to even enter certain states of consciousness like you can't even get to certain states of consciousness from a normal mind mm. like you have to alter your body for a certain period of time in a certain specific way and all this stuff to even start to see these other states like you 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 wouldn't even notice them you're like you're not going to notice them from like it's like it's like anything you know it's like it, you've never experienced it before you don't know it exists so it's like and it, and it's invisible in a mm -hmm. sense so it's like you're not you're not going to real like normal people aren't even going to be close to seeing some of these states of mind mm -hmm. that certain people could go to especially especially if you have the astral body but you also have the illusionary body or the illusionary body too you mm -hmm. know so you can go wherever you want in your dreams but you can also go over wherever you want in meditation or when you're just walking around like you could just separate your consciousness and your and stuff like that but see they do they do talk about though you know uh, people like not being able to get back to their body and stuff one thing that mm -hmm. freaks me out though is transference of consciousness yoga though a little bit because yeah. of the way they talk about consciously dying and all the masters that do it mm -hmm. it's so intense but then they talk about the other form of transferring your consciousness and they don't talk about it as hardcore but you can but putting your consciousness in insects and birds and things as practice and then, but they don't they don't talk about like you don't have to cap your crown chakra to keep your soul in your body yeah. or whatever like like it's very interesting but but supposedly that practice is not Hindu or Buddhist either that is a practice that's older than both traditions that goes back to the kind of the folk 
Tantra folk yoga of, of India. Well, we had mentioned it before, but even Franz Barden uh, talked about this and the initiation to Hermetics. Yeah. And this is before, as far as I know, there weren't a lot of translated yeah. Tibetan texts around at the time. Yeah, Germany. that's the thing. Barden was good. Barden, or that's why probably he was good, is because he read the, the Tibetan texts. Well, yeah, looking really back, well. it's quite quite the mixture of a bunch of esoteric and uh, yeah, ideas yeah. all thrown together yeah. and I I don't know about the system like a lot of people like are really into it and see, see it as like divine, almost like divinely inspired sure like you shouldn't miss anything but I think a lot of the instructions on meditation and stuff need <coughs> need to be updated well if I mean if you believe Barton's stories he could control the weather and things yeah but, but like um, his system of like Magnetism and electricity, yeah, and in the body is actually kind of very interesting, because mm. because when I measured my body's electricity mm. for days or a, a week or a week and a half or whatever, like three times a day, mm. like one side of my body would be negative and one side would be positive, right? Like consistently. So so it is. I do think I do think there's a lot of truth to the energy body. Yeah. But the energy body is way more dynamic than the imagined energy body of even the spiritual systems. Mm. Like it, it is the light and electricity body in our body. Like it's it's the electromagnetic fields and the photons and mm. all the like it is the literal energy body of the body seemingly. But it seems like we can interact with that body through the imagination somehow. And that and like. I do want to, I thought about an experiment, like, you know, people have, like, psychic pinwheels and stuff, but I think, really, there's a switch called a reed switch. It's a magnetic switch, Mm -hmm. and it switches uh, in response to a magnetic field. Mm -hmm. And I think a really sensitive reed switch would probably be one of the, aside from a single electron, Mm -hmm. would probably be the easiest thing to influence with the mind. Yeah. Because, like... uh, with with the other stuff you're you're you know it's you're getting a lot of weight and stuff but with yeah. with like a single electron or, or or something like that you 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 actually really could maybe see the but then I've always talked about you know like see see it's like tantra you like what if you created a ritual and you did it like like seriously every day all day long all day long but the ritual was to make like a ball roll down a hill faster to like show that it's you know something greater than science or something like that but it's interesting because maybe maybe something like that would work but you would have to like fully devote your life to it mm. which is something that no normal person or really any person would want to do or 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 do for a very long time i mean maybe some some like strange person or something mm. but it's like a lot of the things like that it's like there's just nobody to devote 2,000 hours to it or 10,000 hours to it like it just at a certain point everyone gives it up or whatever you know because it's just not profitable or it's not useful why well, I've seen thing people like putting pendulums <clears throat> inside glass bottles so there's no possibility yeah. of it being manipulated other you know otherwise yeah. Uh, yeah I mean I think it's interesting I've so I've heard stories and this is like conspiratorial but it's like the people at the top know that reality is pr- largely constructed by the mind by and so, but it's constructed by the collective mind. Yeah. So they they construct reality by all by controlling information and and changing people's perceptions. And this ultimately changes the world. I mean, I I think if you open the door to an individual could change reality, then you open the door to eight billion minds. 
well, control could change reality. Well, but that's the thing. Way. Like everyone is changing reality at every moment. Like mm-hmm. every every time your neurons fire, every time you move, your your reality is altered, and it is yeah. almost like we are born into a, a little curve in space time, or like a distortion in space time. Mm-hmm. Like like we are a distortion in space time. Mm-hmm. As we move through the world, we're distorting space time. Yeah. So so it's like we we. That's the one thing, too. Like, we... Well, there's so many things. But, like, we think of ourselves as one thing, but we are really trillions of things. Mm-hmm. You know, but we have one consciousness. Mm-hmm. And you have this whole tradition over the whole globe that focuses on consciousness and the I, the nature of the I, because that's all we have, you know? And, and that's kind of the interesting thing because you have billions of entities making up one entity but these billions of entities want to make up one entity like they made this you know and they keep copying it and keep doing it over and over and over so billions of it but you can see even in your own body billions of entities made the heart they made the liver Mm. they make all these things so they're they were individual cells but now they're one thing and they do a function you know, so even in the body, you have kind of a same pattern going on. You know, mm-hmm. of thing of billions of things becoming one higher organism, one higher organism. But that's also the po- process in like spirituality and stuff too. There's all these spread out ideas, mm-hmm. and then you start start learning them, reading them, reading them, and then you start getting realizations that take you to higher higher perspectives. And then mm-hmm. from a higher perspective, you can see that idea from a different angle that you weren't able to see before. And that's that's the trick, is kind of like amping the mind to certain places where you can see angles you weren't able to see before, see behind things that you couldn't see behind before, mm. and that gives. And, but that that destroys your ideas, sure. and that's why it's difficult for people because it destroys all your all the scaffolding you've built up, and so and most people want to build beautiful scaffolding and they want it to be rock solid, you mm. know. And that's why the Buddhists like with or Vajrayana like the mandalas, the sand mandalas. You know, you build this big sand mandala, and then you throw it all in the river. <laughs> like these guys spend days, grain by grain, building the mandala, and yeah. then they sweep it up and throw it in a river. You know, and it's it was, but it's a perfect lesson for impermanence. You know, and also for the intellect and the spirit, because mm-hmm. it's the intellect and the spirit that built the mandala. You know, it's not truly the body; it's the mind. You know, that built it. So it's like, it's, a, it's such a beautiful... That's why I also say Vajrayana is very smart in how they use deities. Because their deities are humans mm. with extra heads and extra yeah. hands and extra faces and extra eyes and stuff. This is a brilliant system because you're trying to amp the human. You're trying mm. to amp the human body, wisdom, imagination, all these things. Yeah. So, so in certain respects, the best symbol for that is deified human beings. Oh, like yeah, you I know, because that's what that's like. That's the highest power in our mind is deification, divination. Well, I, think, I think that's why Christ divinizing the archetype of Christ is, is also so so powerful. Yes. Well, see, Christ, right? Paul, Christ is basically guru yoga. Mm-hmm. Western, like a super powerful form of Western guru yoga. Yeah. And Paul, if you read Paul, he says that himself. You know, he makes it into a guru yoga himself. And and the thing is, what's really interesting is that the that the Western world found a guru yoga 
practice yeah. very similar to what they all recommend in the East well, is a is a, is a, a guru that you can see as God mm-hmm. because that allows your mind to jump to another level that because in Tantra they say we're trying to eradicate normal thought we're trying yeah. to get you out of the normal state of mind so you want to see everything as divine you want to see everything as divinities because you're getting yourself to a higher state of mind so you can perceive more of reality so you can so you have a higher awareness higher consciousness you know? well uh i think there's a, so we know that these guru yoga practices have been imported into western esotericism i believe crowley talked about it but there are there are modern books that discuss it yeah but people as far back as like saint ignatius right yeah you would do visualization practices of watching the passion of christ watching him uh going through his trials watching watching him on the cross i mean this isn't really far away from imagining a being of light in front of you during meditation. Exactly. And even people like Julian of Norwich did had had revelations and, and saw the passion of Christ and the suffering of Christ. I mean, the, the, practically speaking, it's very what's going on is very similar. Exactly. That you're putting yourself at, at least in the imagination before an image of divinity. But of course, and maybe there's some differences in Christianity, but ultimately in, in tantrism, well, see, usually into, you integrate the the deity into your body and imagine yourself. Yes. I don't I don't know if there's people out there that imagine themselves as a Christ. Yeah, sure. But you know. I mean, the nuns and stuff too would mm-hmm. do that. They would take Christ in their body and then become Christ or become the wife of become Virgin mm-hmm. Mary and things like that. Well, they they take on his wounds. I mean, this is very exactly. This is almost like I mean, when you when the more I think about it, the closer it gets. At least exactly. In some cases, and yeah. but see underlying the process is kind of the, like they're trying to do the same thing with a similar process mm-hmm. so so you so it's like it's this is where i say it's just you're just doing stuff to move the body and mind in certain ways mm-hmm. and that's it like all the all the all the scat all the like artwork and stuff you put on top of it is just mm-hmm. to help you sure. like to make you comfortable to make you like it to make you do it over and over again like but see it's very difficult for westerners i think or american people to see any entity as god i think it's yeah. very difficult because we because we are a secular nation but but mm-hmm. it's difficult it's just a difficult practice in general i think because it's in the highest tantras so so it's obviously a practice that most normal people don't do sure. you know so so it is it does uh have a degree of difficulty to it and it is complex visualization and it's they say it's bringing the imagination into the practice it's complex mm. imagination practice and yeah. complex imagination practice is not something we do a lot of in in the western world we have a lot of memory we have a lot of intellect but we do not spend a lot of time sitting around imagining complex scenes like a mandala with 50 deities with deities at every chakra point of the deities and everything like that with all their houses and everything like we don't spend years of our lives imagining complex worlds that that uh, imaginal worlds you know and that and i think that's what this gives us a huge disadvantage in spiritual practice as in in the western world but but it's one of the keys to higher spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. Is a very, very well-trained imagination, uh, well, a stable imagination, a stable mind. I don't know if it's the one that you, you sent me, but uh, a Western source that comes to mind of like of something similar to that would be Plotinus. Yeah. And he talks about imagining the world and slowly making it more subtle and breaking it down into the forms. I mean. 
and, and this is done in, in, in guru practice, right? Like, it's broken down, uh, the DD is broken down into light and expands into the entire universe and becomes, yes. the universe becomes subtle. I mean, in that case, it's almost identical what they're doing, but so time yes. starts with the universe, they maybe start with a deity. Yeah. The, the trend is the same. Well, you start they with go, emptiness. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, that's what Plotinus yeah. seems to be working from the material, but ultimately saying, of course, what's really real is this subtle substrate that upholds it, and we're trending the mind in that direction by using this visualization. Yeah, yeah. and see, and that's where that's where Plot, well, Plotinus said he wanted to go to the east. I mean, he's mm-hmm. definitely... And with that thing I sent you, you can clearly see that that is a very decent meditation or contemplative practice, where he says to steal yeah. the self, and then he says to steal all the elements, even. Mm. He doesn't put fire in there, but it's very, very similar to the to many of the elemental practices in, in mm. many esoteric systems or occult systems. Because well. mostly, what I noticed early on in study is esoteric systems and occult systems all over the world mostly deal with chakra systems. Sure. Most of these, most of occult esoteric systems, and when you get down to the core of them, they are chakra systems, either from India or ones that developed, like uh, uh, aside from the Indian chakra systems, you know. But but looking at them usually, even in, in China and Japan as well. And, and but it's kind of interesting because it does seem like many of the secret practices came out of India and spread all over the world. Mm-hmm. But you do have seemingly really interesting kind of uh, indigenous, shamanic, tantric, yogic, meditation people mm-hmm. in India, thousands of them, doing their own practices to their own deities, not related to any traditions, and doing, doing still to this day, there are people that do that. Yeah. And, and so you have this kind of natural, and see, they said Buddha was a wandering meditator before he hung out with the Jains and all sure. that kind of stuff. So it's like, you, you kind of have this tradition of people just wandering around meditating. Mm-hmm. And it's not some, it's not, it's not some tradition or some sanctioned thing. It's just a natural thing that they do, you know? And, and we don't, we also don't have very many traditions of that in America or anything like that. Like, and with killing the Indians and all that kind of stuff. We killed our shamanic and yeah. shamanic and a lot of the meditators and stuff probably would have came from many of those tribes, you know. So, so, uh, or there would have been many spiritual systems to come out of those tribes if they would have, but like if it was if America was like India, mm. and we never would have killed any of them, and you and you you would probably have very dynamic spiritual traditions coming out of a lot of these tribes. Because really, one reason I think Padma Savava is so interesting in certain respects is because of his prophecy. When he mm. said, iron birds fly, yeah. the, Tibetan, the Tibetan teaching will come to the land of the red man. Right, right. Yeah, and I think that prophecy is crazy. Yeah. Because he's one of the only ones, and it's like, and he talks about electricity, kind of like lines, seeing power lines and stuff. Yeah. Like, that is like one of the craziest, like... Now, most modern prophecies in a sense that I've ever well, heard of anything. It's really funny. A lot of people are hail Nostradamus, who, who yeah. is extremely vague. Yeah. And I can't make heads to tails of most of what he says. I mean, yeah. I and people point to the Bible, and I think the Bible, I think it makes a lot of questionable predictions. People point to the Quran. Yeah. And like what uh, Padma Sambhava says is like one of the best predictions I've, I've ever heard. From <laughs> I know, the, it's like, crazy. That's the thing about Padma Sambhava is when I first found him, but he is just an amazing sage. Like, and he hid all these texts. 
yeah, around yeah. Tibet, and the, and people found them years after, and, and they're like, still finding under rocks stuff. and caves. Yeah, but I would say like the if if, if anybody was going to make an accurate prediction, it'd be somebody like that. You exactly. Know? It's well, that's the thing I say about light body and stuff too. Like mm-hmm. if anyone can turn their body into light, it would be the people trying to do it as hard as they can. <laughs> like the people that spend eighty years doing it every day, they're fuck, they're doing the practice over and over and over to try and imagine all the elements of their body turning into light over and over and over and over again you know it's like that's the person who's going to be able to do it if anybody and the thing that it is is maybe seemingly maybe some aspects of the consciousness can turn into light like there Mm -hmm. seemingly is since the consciousness is not a physical thing Mm -hmm. it's maybe something else but so when it gets in certain states it maybe turns into light and then we can see the infinity of reality you know i would say something like its medium becomes light yeah because i'd like consciousness not is nothing right yeah yeah yeah, but, yeah exactly but I, but exactly yeah, yeah yeah it embeds itself in different mediums and light could very well be one of them yeah right? well you get to like the luminous clarity like the yeah. rig put kind of thing you get down to the subtle state that is like light but it's light mixed with awareness it's like light yeah. and mind mixed together mm-hmm. at the lowest at the lowest level and 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 that I think that is a very beautiful, but also, like, one of the most scientific, almost, ideas of the nature of reality, in a, in a sense, is because it all boils down to, like, sound, light, and rays in the mind, mm-hmm. which is, like, such a brilliant thing to come to, like, in 1300 AD, you know, and that's Padmasambhava, too. Mm-hmm. He came to, like, to Zongshan and Ninyingma, which is really, Ninyingma tradition is such an advanced tradition. Like, the Kagyus are very very much from India. Like, a lot of their tantras are Indian tantras and stuff. And, and uh, Talopa, Talopa supposedly learned a ton of tantras from Indian masters. And he's the lineage of, of, of uh, Kagyut. But Padmasambhava is kind of a very unique. But see, he, had a, he, learned, it, he learned it all from supposedly the tantric colleges, maybe. But, but I, I do think... Well, there's all kinds of people like that. Like Tesla. There are certain people that are kind of like... Well, there's the old idea of godsends or something. But there are certain people that are like... Like Tesla would get sick when they... Like when he couldn't go to school, hmm. he would get sick. Yeah. Like when he couldn't go to class. And he would... And like... And he thought about electrical engineering all the time. That no one didn't... He didn't have to go to school. No one forced him to do it. Yeah. No one no one coaxed him to do it. It was something that he loved to do. It was his passion. It was something that he was inspired to do, you know? And then he, found, and then he saw the electric motor in a vision and mm. stuff like that. So there's certain... And then, like, Von Neumann. And they, and, all, and really, tons of people. Like, they're, they're just, like, on another level. But it's... In a certain respect, it's patterns. Like, people see patterns. And if you see... A pattern that basically echoes to infinity. If you get the pattern in one, if you just get one cycle of the pattern, you have the infinite pattern. So it's like you don't, that's kind of the trick with a lot of things. It's like stuff is this, has been the same for billions of years. Mm-hmm. Like like making fire and like, yeah. like gravity and certain things. Like stuff has been the same for billions of years. And even neurons and stuff the molecules that make up our neurons are the same atoms and molecules that made up neurons of people a hundred thousand years ago like the same basic atoms that make up those neurons are the same Mm -hmm. you know so so there's so much similarity 
in everything. And that's why it's good to take advantage of it in a second. Because I used to be very anarchist, you know, against hierarchies of, it, of sure. any kind in a certain respect. But then, once you start studying a lot of high-quality, like, systems, yeah, you recognize that hierarchies are... Certain hierarchies are important, like, not because they're, like, some kind of controlling hierarchy, but because some genius has found it or something. Well, or some great artist has laid it out, and it's, like, it's a thing that helps the mind, you know? Well, it's not something you have to stick to, necessarily. There's, there's different types of hierarchies. There's bad hierarchies. There's pathological True. hierarchies. True. There's proficiency hierarchies. Exactly. And those are, those are real, and those are important. Like, we don't want yeah. arbitrary power hierarchies where people get in their positions for arbitrary reasons. We People exactly. in power should be good at what they're doing. I mean, that's... Well, it's like rocket science, too, right? It's like, if you want to build a rocket, you go to a rocket scientist. You yeah. don't go to someone who's never been to school or whatever and get their opinion about how to build a rocket. That's a true way not, Chris. That's what... Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it's like, that's the, that's the kind of thing. Educated opinion is different from regular opinion yeah and especially people who really care about it and really do it all the time their opinion is way more valuable than someone who doesn't care about it and doesn't do it all the time and that's why you got to watch for people that are arguing against things because a lot of times people argue against things and they've never experienced the thing they're arguing Sure. Uh, against you know they don't know really anything about it from their own personal experience they only know about it from hearing about it in the news or on the internet or from one of their friends or something but the, and really the key to a lot of things is knowing it yourself mm. like and then reading it in other people and, and seeing it in other places and seeing how another person dealt with the same problem, see how another person jumped off from that same thought and which direction they went and which one you went mm. and figuring out how to keep going and round it out, you know? Because that's kind of the advantage we have now is we can look at thousands of minds and yeah. you can look at the question you're asking yourself and you can be like, how did Descartes answer that question? Mm. How, how did Leibniz answer that question? You know, how, how did all these, how did all the smartest human beings in the world answer this question? Because you can, you can really look through a lot of people. Like it, you can almost guarantee if you ask yourself a question, and it's a good question, that mm. some great mind has asked themselves that question before. You sure? Because it's the nature of reality. Like, it's all the same in a certain respect. Like, it's unchanging. Like, okay. uh, it, but it's kind of like rearranging, you know? But it's never, it, it's like, uh, there is an unchanging nature to it, just as there's a, a kind of flowing nature to it, you know? Well, people often talk about the utility of reading old philosophers is so that you see where it ended. And yes. they're in various trains of thought, so you don't go down the same pathway. Or yes. maybe you find one that works well for you. But Well, see, Whitehead said, you're just as indebted to the people you took ideas from and jumped off positively, positively from mm. than the people you hated their ideas and then you wrote 20 pages against that idea. Yeah. Like, you're just as indebted to the people you don't like as you like, because they shape your thought as much as, as the people you like. So well, you've got to watch things like that, too. I was watching a podcast, and a guy was, he translated the Phenomenology of Spirit, he wrote other, I think his last name is Pinker, I don't think it's Stephen Pinker, but yeah. a different guy. But he's saying, the guy was asking him, like, why should people read Hegel? And he's like, well, at the very least, you should re read the guy who everybody's reacting to for a very long time. They're talking about Marx, but it's like, Almost everybody thinks he's talking about the positivists 
are reacting to Hegel. So if you yeah. want to really understand the context in which they're speaking, it's important to read this particular guy. Whether or not you agree with him, I think he's probably not right about it. everything, but like you said, it's well, good to read people. Well, one you. thing I say about this, too, out of the billions and trillions of the humans that have existed, Hegel, <laughs> Socrates, these are like a handful of people that are mentioned in the annals of history. Over the billions of people that existed... So with a lot of these people, especially the big, big names, you can pretty much guarantee that they're pretty brilliant, at least in some spot. Like you're never, you're never, no name like that is ever going to be a complete idiot. They're just, mm-hmm. it just doesn't happen. Like people don't remember those people. People don't care about those people. People yeah. don't like their ideas. People don't follow their ideas. Like every big name Hegel, Kant, Leibniz all these guys have valuable things to say it doesn't matter if you like them or not it's like yeah. they're they're humans in the history of humanity it's I, like I, you can't deny you can't deny it in a sense I kind of understood what Schopenhauer was getting at at the beginning of his two essays on ethics but he, he had like four arguments where Hegel said something very silly and yeah. you're like look at this guy he's a freaking idiot like, yeah. how could you believe anything he said it's like, I understand he didn't like Hegel, and he had a lot of reasons, not, and maybe a lot of valid reasons, but, yeah, that's not a good way, I mean, that's ultimately not a huge, a great argument against saying, to say somebody was wrong about one thing. Yeah. And, and earlier, or in a, in a different place, he's talking about Kant, he was like, great minds are allowed to make mistakes, or, some, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, well, that's the thing, like, Hegel and Kant are not 100% correct on anything, no philosopher, no human being is 100% correct on everything at all. And the thing, but the thing is, the quality of their mind is a brilliant thing. Mm-hmm. Like, like, because a lot of times it isn't about what they're saying in certain respects because they ought, do have the details wrong because they didn't have the information. They didn't. They mm-hmm. don't have the information we have now. And if they did, they would have said something different. Mm-hmm. You know. So, so it's like. You just have to remember that with a lot of things too, because sure, especially could, with people in the past, you could learn, yeah, how they how they thought. You could learn their methods of thinking and apply that with exactly. better information. But yeah, uh, philosophy is always updated by the modern uh, scientific situation, social situation. But there's a lot of these things are the way, ways of ca- thinking very carefully or something of that yeah. sort. These things can be translated easily into new environments, and they they should be. Well, it's also like Whitehead, right? Like, one thing that always impressed me about Whitehead when I read him is, like, he says something, and I'm like, oh, he's going to say this next. Mm. And he says something completely brilliant that is not what I thought he would say next. And that's the one greatest thing about great minds, is they take something that everyone thinks, but then they see it from a different angle. They see It's Mm. like the genius thing. It's like what Schopenhauer said about the target, you know? It's like genius sees a target genius sees something that talent doesn't see mm-hmm. like and every and most people are working by talent and skill or he, or he says uh uh what's that like genius hits the mark that yeah talent can't see yeah exactly talent hits a target in the like talent hits a target in the center genius hits a target that that talent can't even see but they, see that's the thing that's with everything there's like genius is a very rare thing and I do think, to me, spiritual genius is the most rarest form of geniusness. Mm. And that's why that's why it's a very kind of tricky thing. But, like, that's where a lot of the processes in India and, and Tibet is about cultivating 
genius. Cultivating mastery. Once you cultivate mastery, you cultivate wisdom, and you cultivate genius, in a sense. And see, I do think, like, corporations in America have wanted a long time to be able to create geniuses at the drop of a hat. Like, there's some method that they can send people to school and they'll come out geniuses. No one's ever found it, you mm. know? But the thing is, the way they train in, in uh, Tibet and stuff, that's how you create a genius. And it's not, it's not any of these systems that, that we have, especially in the business world right now. Like, that's not the way to create geniuses. Like, you do it through intuition, wisdom, mm -hmm. like, imagination. Like, you have to amplify these fundamental factors of mind that make everyone's mind move. Yeah. Like, you can't, you can't do anything if you don't work with those fundamental factors of mind. Yeah, I think I've, I've read that meditation was called, like, the king of practices or, like, the king of, of something. Yeah, it's... But, it's the, yeah, ultimately, mm -hmm. you're developing the faculties that you use for everything. You're developing awareness, concentration, metacognition, yes. imagination. Anything, any skill that you're going to take to make something or build something, you're going to develop meditation. Yeah, it's called Raja Yoga, meditation, and Raja is the king. Mm, yeah. So, so, but it, but that also implies people with time to meditate. Yeah. Well, it's like it's like a meta skill. It's yeah. a skill in which you use to become better at other skills. Well, see, well, true. But this time in history is the time where we have time to meditate, but people don't take the time and I, dedicate well, it to meditation. I think and a lot, I think some I think a lot of people don't. Maybe. Well, that's true. I mean, people are fully caught up in their lives and and have multiple jobs and families and all yeah. this kind of stuff. I, I mean. mean even working at one job, you, I get back, man, I'm from tired, but yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. just not inclined to, to practice. Exactly. And, seeing, and people talk about the necessity to go into retreats, to get into the, the jhanas and so forth. I don't know if that's 100%, but it definitely makes it a lot easier if that's all you're sure. concentrating on. Well, that's the thing. I mean, that is, I mean, people have went to retreat for thousands of years because mm -hmm. it makes mental and spiritual practice easier. I mean, that is... But, see, that's why I think tantra... Like, there will be a new system. And it will be something like Tantra, where you mm. where you incorporate every aspect of experience into a spiritual practice. And you use technology and techniques mm. to amplify your mind. And it will be a lot of techniques that are basically Tantric techniques, just taken out of the Buddhist iconography and, and placed within no iconography in a sense. But yeah. then again, after that, you really see why it's smart to clothe them in the divine iconography mm. like because there is it's because that's what one thing a lot of buddhists don't like vajrayana for that in that for that reason in a sense but but see that's the thing i do think divinizing things tr making things transcendental in a sense is like one of the key practices to really really amplify the mind or really to get it to places or that's what i've seen is similar in all practices at the end like, and everyone you read, like, even all the techniques, like, you're just trying to, like, see the world as divine. But then again, you have the Gnostic sects and all those people who see the world as evil or right. see the world as something to leave. But see, I think that's, I, th I really think the Bodhisattva vowed, like, to save everyone, but also the Tantric to incorporate every aspect of the world yeah. into practice is a much better and more supreme view. Well... In a sense, because you're afraid. If you if you hate the world, you're afraid of the world. Like mm -hmm. things like that. Like the 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 way the way the Gnostics see the world is such a 
is such a thing that, and the Christians too, a lot of the Christians, is such a thing that kind of destroys the traditions in a sense for me overall. Even if the traditions are great, like, you can't hate the world. Because hating the world leads to what we have now, where you where we're destroying, where people destroy the world, or corporations destroy the world, and no one cares. Wow, you know? I I agree. Like actively hating the world is extremely problematic, and even but po- it's a technique right. in spiritual well, practice. Even like Plotinus it's a useful technique wrote a tractate against the Gnostics, yes. stating that they judge the world too harshly, exactly. that it's a divine it, it's a divine being in itself, and so forth. But he he does say even even with that being stated. That you shouldn't give undue attention to the body, and that you, yes. and in other other places as well, he says only give enough attention to the body that's necessary. Yes. But ultimately, he doesn't say the world's a terrible thing. He says that it's a divine thing, but it's just it's not as good as as intellect, or it's not as good as soul. It's not as good well, as see, intellect. It's not as good that's as one. To me, like once you see the inside of atoms, once you see down into atoms, down into molecules and all this stuff, and the crystal lattices and the and the and the shapes of crystal lattices and snowflakes and all this stuff, like uh, the world is 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 much more advanced than we are. <laughs> mm-hmm. The world is better than we are, you know. And that's one thing that's kind of tricky, you know, because they didn't even they didn't have all this information. And really, a lot of them would have probably changed their tune if they would have saw crystal lattices and atoms and all the and the, and the uh, and the elemental table and various things like that, like. Because you, because you would see that it's all harmonics and it's all the all the stuff that everyone talked about, and 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 it would be like the music of the spheres in a sense. So I do think, like that mind is a mindset of seeing everything as kind of dead matter, that is like solid objects that'll that'll kill you, basically. Right. Well, oh, the platonic, like Neoplatonic matter. It's like you said, it's a, like a conjunction, it's a a unity of, of something essentially. Well, uh, of non-being and something essentially spiritual, an idea, yes. ideas, and, and non-being. And yeah. it matters as close as, as non-being as you can get. Yes. And I was even reading Schopenhauer, and he had very similar ideas about matter. That matter is just like, it's almost an un- uncreated substance that is never actually destroyed, but just takes takes on different uh, forms or is imprinted with different yeah. shapes. But Well, matter, well, that gets into an interesting kind of complex thing because Leibniz and all them, like they have that book on the nature of physical existence, that one, and he talks about the history of the concept of matter, mm. and it's actually pretty interesting because really, matter is like it's kind of like uh, alchemy too, where they have the prime materia, you know. Mm. But if you really think about it, like especially with physics now, you have the the vacuum that everything arises from and that falls back into. So it is very you do have this kind of prime materia that yeah. is not even matter. But right. see, it's not. See, that's the one thing we have got. We have gotten past matter, and that still hasn't been incorporated in the Western philosophy. Well, I don't think. It, yeah, I don't think it's been incorporated into a lot of people's minds. Yeah, that things are. Coagulations, if you will, of the, like a subtle something or a subtle field, but things. Yeah. Uh, materialism, and it's kind of funny because uh, Nietzsche said that Christianity eventually led to nihilism because it it, it uh, put truth on a pedestal, but eventually truth trampled upon Christianity, the thing that was like putting yes. it as, as something important. And True. materialism had kept kept pushing science forward to the point that it overcame itself. Just like Christianity over, fell over itself into nihilism, 
physicalism has, I think, rightly over tripped over itself and fell into some non-physicalism. Well, well, I mean, but it's pushed forward by true scientists. It's pushed forward by people who are not ideological and who are not extremists, in a sense. Like, in the sense of Buddhism, where you go to extremes all the time, you know? like. Uh, well, it's just interesting. Well, some of them are. Well, it's like the Hegelian dialectic, like, every view has a tension that is only, like, forces to go... <laughs> forced to go beyond itself eventually yes well that is that's where i say uh well that's why i say trans 